Jody Miller, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I have known you, I feel like for about 15, maybe not quite 20 years. We met at, it was like a house party, but it was like a fancy house party. I think there was like a valet and like- It was in the Hollywood Hills. And I think at the time, Facebook was like the only real social media and we connected on there. And then I've just been, you know, up, up, up all in your business ever since <laughs> about everything that you're doing. My first question for you is, I mean, you're a comedian, but what is the difference between- being a comedian and being a performer? So I think there's a great difference between, you know, being a comedian and being a performer. I think some people were, are literally born a comedian. Like they have something to say, they take to the stage. That's really what they want to do. They want to, they, they like, they live, breathe, eat it all the time. I have a lot of friends that I look at them. I was like, oh, you were born to be a comedian. Not meaning that they're not going to do other things. Most, you know, I, you can't just be a comedian. You know what I mean? Um, like, you know, whether you are author, you know, also an actor or an author, or, you know, you write screenplays or television shows. It's, it's rare this day and age that somebody's just a comic. But I believe some people were born comics. I was born a performer, meaning that from, you know, the time I was little, that's all I wanted to do, whether it was acting, I started out singing. I never wanted to be a comic. It wasn't even on my radar. I only did it to further my acting career because a producer you know, mentioned that I had really good timing and that I should take classes on it. So I did only to further my acting career. And for some reason, that's the part of you know my career that took off in a way. And I'm not even saying took off at that time. It was just, I you know, is waiting for auditions, but with stand-up, you get to decide how much or how little you want to perform. You're really in control of your career. So I liked that. So it kept me really creative until other things came along. And if it wasn't for stand-up, I wouldn't have become a writer, uh, a producer, you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm a director. I'm incredibly grateful for it because it opens so many doors and I love it. I do love it. But at the end of the day, I definitely consider myself more a performer, meaning that I, there's so many things I love to do. Yeah. It's not just that, you know what I mean? But it's definitely in my DNA now. I've been doing it so long that it's a part of who I am for sure. But uh, yeah. in your opinion, then when you say some people were definitely born to be uh, born a comic, who who in uh, out there would you say is that person? Um, I mean, you can look at some of the greats, you know, obviously, if, if you look at, I mean, some of the like, I, well, I don't mean great, like they're better than others, just people that are so well known, like a Jerry Seinfeld, definitely meant to be a, you know, a comedian. Absolutely. I mean, he's not a great actor, as we know, but you know, he's <laughs> uh, an amazing comedian and he can host and all of that, even Ellen DeGeneres. You know, my best friend, Eliza Schlesinger, you know, she's, she does everything. She's a great actress too, and a great writer. But I mean, from the moment I met her, she was, you know, put on this earth to definitely be a comedian. Um, she just had something different that, than what I had, not better or worse. It was a different drive. You can tell it right away, I feel like. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then you could see other people that, you know, not just, you know, maybe are a performer, but like, you know, we're actors that all of a sudden want to try stand-up comedy, which you know, whatever, if that's what you want to do. It's, it's, not, it's not as easy as people think for sure. No, I think, you know, everybody can get on stage and they have something funny to say, but I think it's funny that the industry has shifted so much in regards to what, 
what makes someone a star, quote unquote. I mean, you know, looking just at the comedy clubs, you used to, you know, work really hard, eventually get passed at clubs. And then once you were regular at clubs, you could get on a television show, you know, like yeah. some sort of, you know, notoriety. But nowadays it's like, you can have, you know, a million followers on TikTok. Oh, you can get past at this club. You can be a regular now. It's it's all about, it's everything has shifted. It's not, and I'm not saying the clubs that I'm, you know, the clubs that, that I'm a regular at still really take pride in, in the, the art form of it and the talent. But I know there are other clubs around the country that book people solely on their followers. And mm. that's unfortunate. It's I, look, it's not, it's the way it is now, but sure. those people, you know, didn't put the time in and they don't, you know, they're not, it's unfortunate because there are much better comics out there that can't get that, you know, that spot because somebody else with more followers is getting it. Yeah. And that's kind of the same with, I find that with my actor friends, like yes. people want to know how many followers they have. Even for like commercial auditions, people, yes. it's ridiculous. It's so interesting nowadays because um, Emerson has a, a, a degree in comedy. It, it, they have a bachelor's that you, in, in comedy, literally. A lot of comics came from Emerson. So, it, I mean, there's a, there's a way to like spend four years learning it? You know, there is a way definitely, like I taught stand-up comedy for many, many years and I picked up my class again during the pandemic. I still privately coach some people. There is a way to write a joke for sure. I mean, we all know that. Um, and I've worked with a lot of people that have had, you know, no stage experience, lots of stage experience. So, you know, performance experience. And some people are just, again, like naturally funny and born with it. And some people can be taught how to sort of be funny on stage if they're a really good writer. Do you know what I mean? I've definitely yeah. worked with a lot of people that through the years took my class, performed for a couple of years, but were always better writers mm. and really did not like performing and eventually transitioned over, you know, to work on television shows, yeah. write films. And that's great. I think it's great that I don't have a problem with people wanting to do stand-up and trying stand-up. It's an, I, you know, worked with so many people that some of them were just like, it's on my bucket list. And I think, I thought that was great because it's such a, it's such a scary thing to do. You're so vulnerable. <laughs> yes. It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's actually public speaking <laughs> is the number one fear. Like death is number two. So it's, it's, you know, try to, make people laugh on top of that it's even more difficult and for people to have that exhilaration that rush that first show which is in my opinion almost always an amazing show because the the gods bless you the comedy gods I really believe that so it's a to watch somebody experience that was always very rewarding for me and even if they never do it again they did it and a lot of people can't even do it so yeah I think you can teach people the art of comedy yeah. and how to to do it you know what I mean maybe you're not going to be, you know, again, you have to have that natural talent to keep it going, but you can definitely be, be taught the, uh, some of the rules. And then there's, uh, by the way, there's an exception to every rule. I hate the classes that are like, you can only do it this way. You should only do it that way. Comedy is very subjective. What some people laugh at, other people are not going to laugh at. So there are no rules, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah. That's why like certain comedians, people gravitate towards more than others because you can relate to them. Yes. One of the reasons I feel like I love watching you is because you, I mean, you, as a woman, you have a different eye towards things, uh, towards men, uh, your mom now motherhood also.
And in my opinion, the best comics are the ones that are relatable to everyone, all yes. different ages, you know, and then my special, like, I obviously talk about being of a certain age, being a woman, being a mom, you know, dating stuff. I find it, you know, it's still relatable to people in their twenties up to people in their eighties, you know what yes. I mean? Because I'm talking about stuff that you can still appreciate as like, oh, that's hilarious. You know yes. what I mean? Or, oh my God, I've experienced that. And I think that's, that's some comics apart from other comics. You know what I mean? Well, that type of humor, like I, it's funny. I I had to see if you were on Wikipedia, and of course, I f- I found a little profile on you there, and it and there was a a little subhead saying style of comedy observational. <laughs> but I'm like, isn't for the most part comedy observational? It is interesting that they put that there, and I don't know who does my uh, Wikipedia page. It just appeared one day, um, which I was like, oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I think they don't actually have a category for, you know, and I teach this in my class, you know, th- there's two major types of, of stand-up, just the two t- types. It's observational and personal. Mm. And the most successful to, in my mind, in my um, opinion, is personal. It's, if you look at all of the sitcoms that were you know, created by stand-ups based on their life from, you know, Seinfeld to Roseanne, to everybody loves, loves Raymond, Raymond, yeah. To Drew Carey, to you know all of the great ones, Grace Butler. I mean, all of the ones you know, Margaret Cho at the time. Like they all did it. It's all based on their personal lives because it really you know paints a picture of who they are and it makes them unique and it's relatable. Their life, their family life, all of that stuff. The other type of comedy is observational comedy. And it's kind of the easiest to do because we're doing it all day long. We're always observing things. We're always, you know, when you call your friends up and you're like, oh my God, if I have to see one more, you know, set of balls hanging from a truck, like I'm going to kill my, <laughs> like anything you like think of, you're doing an observation. You're up, yes. that's, why, that's why it's so relatable. And anyone can do that. And, and it's great. And the two most successful comics at that are Jerry Seinfeld and Ellen DeGeneres. And if you think about their comedy, they rarely talk about their personal lives, if ever. They make mention of it because they're the ones observing it and they might be they might be with their family when they're observing it. Yeah. But yeah. they don't really dive into their personal life. It's so, I think as a comic, your goal is kind of to... I would say, you know, create a nice balance between the two, but the more personal you can get, the more unique you are. I always say that like most comics in their twenties are almost all observational because they don't even really know who they are yet. And that's fine. I didn't know who I was when I was in my twenties, which is why all of my material was about dating and partying and like not having any money or whatever, but that's what I was experiencing at the time. And then as you get older, it starts to become more personal because you start acquiring more baggage in your life and more life experience. And then that's when it comes relatable. But when you make it personal, you really set yourself apart from the, you know, the pack. Like I adopted a child and that makes me unique. You know what I mean? There's a lot of comics out there that are parents. I could just talk about having kids, which is also just a great experience. Everyone experiences is unique, but you don't hear a lot of comics. There's, I mean, obviously there's Kim Whitley who also adopted a child. There's a lot of other comics that that have talked about it, whether they're adopted or they've adopted, but it kind of sets you apart. Like people will remember, oh, she adopted, as a single woman, she adopted a child. Um, and that's, and I didn't do it, even though I joke about it, I didn't do it to have material. I, did try, <laughs> I tried to get pregnant on my own. And at that time, I was talking about it. I was talking about doing the IUI and going to my, you know, fertility doctors and 
and doing all of that stuff and getting inseminated and picking out sperm donors. That was all my material when that was happening. And that was also kind of unique, you know what I mean? But those are personal experiences. Everybody's experience, even though it's relatable, is a personal experience. You have experiences that only you really have. Other people might have very similar ones, but coming from you, you're talking about stuff that people are like, oh my God, that sort of sets you apart. So I always encourage people when they're writing material, talk about something, even if you think it's not appropriate, you're in recovery, you got divorced, you're transitioning, you're whatever you think, oh God, I don't know if I should talk about it. You should definitely talk about it because there's someone in the audience that has a similar story, you know, and that's what, that's why we love comedy and we love connecting with that comic. You know what I mean? Because we're like, oh, they're going what they're going through what I'm going through in a different way, but yeah. Yeah. That that's so true. That's so true because, um, uh, yeah, obviously there, there was so much about motherhood that I related in your standup, which again, we will get to in a, in a, in a second, including being a mom and adopting all of that good stuff. But, um, before we get to the present, I wanted to just go a little bit back in time. Um, so, uh, you were on America's uh, Got Talent, and and I remember sitting in my living room. I think there was like just the time of the DVRs at that time, and um, and there you appeared on stage, and and I uh, you slayed. I mean, you 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 have that clip. Hopefully, we'll be able to play it here over the podcast when we run it, so other people can see it if they haven't. Um, but I also was in shock that when I was watching it and you were telling your story uh, behind the scenes, you know, how you were delivering groceries and all that stuff. And like, I just, I didn't know any of that stuff. I, in my mind, you were already there. You already established, you were already doing stuff. And, and in fact, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it's awesome. She's on there. She's killing it. But like, isn't this supposed to be for people who are, you know, just trying to get discovered? Like Jody's already discovered. So what was, what was the impetus of all of that? I can tell you a little secret and all your viewers a little secret because it's not a little secret because I've talked about it many, many times. Uh, it's a produced show. America's Got Talent is a very produced show. Those auditions that you see people waiting online, it doesn't happen. Those people are shot waiting online. And there is a possibility that one of those people will actually get through. But I had a very selective audition where a casting director who I was friends with submitted my tape. I heard back that they wanted to see me. I had a very private audition for five producers in a room. Very weird that I had to do comedy, just the same bit in front of them. I was immediately passed through. You sh those people that are passed through, we show up with other people, the other people, they, they have different days for it and they make it look like it's one day. I had been doing comedy a long time. I've been doing military tours. I was in fact delivering groceries. I was also freelancing for a company in New York doing writing work. I wasn't like struggling. I wasn't doing great, but I was doing pretty good, but I was on the road a lot. So yes, my comedy was already doing well, which is, you know, but I, I was not, I was an unknown and social media wasn't big enough for me to have followers. So they were like, okay, she's unknown enough. And I, um, I was also told like, oh, make it sound even worse. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? You're starving. It's so depressing. I was like, I'm not though. They're like, you are. I'm like, okay, I am. So you play the game, you play the game because as a producer, you know what I mean? As someone who knows the game, it, they want a backstory that people are going to attach on. If I was like, everything's going great and this is the next step, they would be like, no, thank you. I actually remember, because my mom had died less than a year, well, about a year, it would have been about a year. And I remember being like, should I talk about my dead mom? Because I was like ready to bring that up. And they were like, no, save that, save it. 
they literally produce it. Now, what I did on stage was not produced. Now, either you go on stage and, you know, in front of the celebrity judges and the audience and whatever happens, happens. You know what I mean? They know everybody that they either bring people in that are purposely really awful or really great or people that they're like, I think they're pretty great, but we'll see what happens. So it's very produced. Now, I went out, I mean, I was there all day. It was the longest day. There were two audiences. It was like the longest day. I, thankfully I was there for the first audience, but I was like told five minutes before you're going up. I had I'd only seen the stage from like a corner. So I was like, where do I go? They're like, there's an X on the stage. It was very like rush, 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 rush. And I remember, you know, you have 90 seconds. And I remember looking down for one minute because I thought, fuck it, I'm taking a second to re, you know, regroup restack you know what I mean so that I can turn off the Jody Miller and just become Jody Miller so I shut down and I remember having a thought of my mom right before like it was like literally she was right there with me and then I shot up I looked right at Howard Stern and I knew from the moment I opened my mouth in the zone and it didn't matter how many people were there because I had performed for so many people it's not like oh my god were you? I, I wasn't nervous I was ready to do it you know what I mean so it goes great People are losing their shit. Um, I come off stage. I mean, I knew a couple of people that worked on the show. There's so many, oh my God, thousands of people that work on that show. So many people, I remember Wendy Liebman was there who I'm friends with and she was doing the next show, but she watched my audition. She was like, oh my God. And I was like, oh my God, you're totally different than me. So don't even like, you don't want to like look at another comic and be like, shit, they just gave her a standing ovation. I'm not going to get in. I was like, you're going to kill it. Um, it was pretty amazing. That day was one of those days that people dream about in Hollywood where every person was like following me around and they were talking to my manager and they're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. We got to prep her and we got to like get all of her social media, like on the same page. We're going to be doing live tweets with her. Like they were prepping me for something massive and that felt great. I left that day. It was amazing. So you're waiting now for two weeks. You They got to finish the auditions and then the next, you know, round is in New York and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting and I'm texting my producer or calling her and she's like we have it we just have to wait in here and I had, I knew other comics that had auditioned that year too that also got passed through and one of them I ran into him and he was like they just cut me they just said I'm not moving forward even though I was moving forward and I'm like they can do that and he's like yeah and then I started to panic because I was like well they can't do that to me because it was such a phenomenal I had like so many applause breaks standing like it can't happen just kept literally going back and forth with my producer who's like don't have any word yet and then the day we were all supposed to leave for new york at six in the morning i got an email that said i'm sorry we're not going we're not moving forward with you and i i couldn't even i remember like i couldn't believe it i was in such shock that i i just was crying and i, I think i cried for like two weeks um because in my mind, they were never gonna air that audition. So it was like, it never happened. Because they don't usually, if you don't move forward, they won't even air it. So, I mean, I was really fucked up. They really, really, it fucked me up badly. And it reminds you again that what this business is. My audience brought me out of that funk. I had a sh maybe two weeks after that, I had a show in Irvine, the Irvine Improv. And I didn't want to go, but I went with a friend. She was like, come on, I'll just, I'll drive you. And then we went and I saw other comics and it had spread in the comic community very quickly. 
that I had a great audition and I got cut. <laughs> so that's, I mean, nothing had aired yet. So, but everybody was like, oh my God, like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I don't want to be here. And I remember, you know, they bring me up. It's like a sold out crowd in Irvine and I get on stage and I take the mic out of this. I remember thinking, just do your set, get back in your, go home and get back into bed. And I take the mic out. So I was on autopilot. I put it down and I say, hey. And I mean, the crowd was just like screaming. And as soon as it died down, right at the moment it died down, this couple in the front just screamed, we love you. Like they had come to find out they had driven from like San Diego to see me. And they just screamed, we loved you. Right at that, we love you. Right at that moment that everybody, so it kind of was funny. And it, it snapped me out of it for a second because it was, everybody was laughing. I was like, oh. And then I look at them and I could tell they were so happy to be there. And I said, I love you too. And it hit me like, fuck those people. Fuck America's Got Talent. This is for me. They can never take this away from me. They can never take that moment away from me. They can never take that away. And these people are here to see me. And everything my friend who was watching said my whole body shifted and I just killed it. I just killed it. And then I got a call like a month later from the producers like, hey, so your episode's gonna air. And I remember being so confused. I'm like, no, you guys cut me. And she's like, well, I don't have any information about that, but your episode's gonna, and then I got nervous. I was like, oh God, are they, they can edit it any way they want. Are they gonna make it look like I did really bad? So I was freaking out and I was trying to like get in touch with anybody that worked there. And I got in touch with one editor who didn't know I was cut. He just literally found me because he had worked on a project that I had worked on years prior. Like, I just edited your episode. You're unbelievable. He still doesn't know that I was cut. And I didn't tell him because I had signed an NDA at that time, um, which is expired. So that's why I can talk about it as much. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I just said, did you just use a little bit? He said, no, you're commercial to commercial, which means I'm the whole act, six minutes. And I, I said, really? And he said, yeah, it's unbelievable. So my manager was also really hesitant. We were all like a freaking out. So I remember my dad is on the East Coast and I said, just please watch it, watch it, record it and call me after. And I remember I was on the 405, I'll never forget. And my phone just froze. It was shaking, it was, it was tweeting, my, the tweets, things were happening to my phone that I didn't know could happen. And I was like, what's happening? I just started getting all these notifications and that was just from the East Coast. And then my phone rang and it was my dad and he was crying. Oh. And he just was so like proud and oh, it makes me want to cry. And I, it was an amazing moment to watch it again. It was also an amazing moment. I mean, I got, I can't even tell you how many followers I got just from that. And that was just the beginning of Instagram and, and Twitter. I mean, like a massive amount of followers. But here is this amazing audition that is literally considered one of the best auditions LA had that year. Cause I was put in the best of, they aired it twice. And they didn't, they never even explained why I got cut. I found out later I got cut. This is through third party, but pretty, it's transcripts that were happened that took place in New York that the judges asked where I was. And one of the producers said, oh, she, um, she declined the, uh, the contract. She didn't want to sign the contract. So they blamed it on me. I, of course, had another freak out. I knew two people that were working with Howie Mandel at the time. And I begged them to please tell Howie that is not the case. I did not back out of the contract. I did not want to, like, I just was like, it felt like a punch in the gut for the second time. And, you know, water under the bridge now. And I'm friends with Howie Mandel. He's on the show that I executive produce the game show. 
the funny thing is, is that a friend of mine auditioned two years later, or three years later, and he was in the group of the comics and they sent all the comics, all the comics. They said, here's a couple videos. This is what you should do if you want to get four guesses from the judges. And one of them was mine for the comics. Like they used my clip to say, this is what you want to do if you want to wow the judges. It's such a, you know, it's like, I, the reason that the, apparently they cut me, it's, and I'll just say it is because they didn't want to, they just didn't want two white Jewish women. And it was me and Wendy Lieberman who didn't have, she had a, a good audition, but they didn't even show her audition. They went with her and I think they went with her because she was a mom. And I think mm. they thought it'll be more relatable. Like I was at that time, early forties, talking about being a cougar, a Jew girl. Like that was going to be my next set was talking about that. And I, I thought that, I think they felt that might be too risque and they just didn't go with me. And it's unfortunate that they didn't let America decide. You know what I mean? Um, I remember reading all of the tweets and the comments. Where's that girl? Where's that girl from the, the cats and dogs? Where? I mean, it was everywhere. The weird thing is, is that after that, my life kind of fell apart. Um, I, I like I lost my freelance job and I was really just working for Instacart and you know, I was still doing okay. I was still working the road. It just, my life was shifting in a lot of different ways. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it changed again for the better. And it's been- So great. after that episode aired, it's not like offers came in? Cause that's- Some did, yes, some did. Just from one episode, some yeah. did. But what we really were hoping for, and I say we, my manager and I, I just needed to make it to the live show. Once you make it to the live show, your offer on the road can be much higher. Your Got it. Got it. And I needed one more, like one more episode, which I would have definitely gotten to the live shows. I, that's all. I didn't even need to win this thing. I didn't even need to make it to the semifinals. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that like maybe three years later, four years later, could have been, oh, four years later, I think, Global's Got Talent, which I guess owns all of the, you know, America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, all that stuff. I see. On Facebook, pit, like grabbed it and featured it. I didn't know this. Um, and I was working on the game show and one of the PAs was like, oh, you're trending right now. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, he'd never seen it the first time. Yeah. Younger dude. And I go, what are you talking about? He's like, oh my God, your video's everywhere. My friend just sent me a video. And I'm like, I work with her. I'm like, what? You're dogging cat video. And I looked, you know, the first time it aired, I forget how many millions of views it had. Millions and millions and millions. The second time Global picked it up, it was like another 41 million views. Wow. Wow. And all of these shares. And it's funny because every time I post it on anything, it immediately blows up like hundreds of thousands up to a million views. The only place that doesn't do well for some reason, even though people lip sync it, is TikTok. TikTok hates me. Oh, I can't oh figure God. out that algorithm. I have a social media person trying to help me do it. It's like, they just don't like me. <laughs> That's the thing. People with a million TikTok subscribers will get work everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, how is this happening when yeah. we're working so hard on our craft? Uh, speaking of that, before we dive into motherhood, yeah. I, there's something I, I'm dying to know about, which is the, the, uh, the tours that you did in Afghanistan, uh, uh, that fascinates me so much because, uh, you know, Hollywood was kind of built on that with Bob Hope doing that. And, yeah. um, um, and I, I, to me, I imagine, I mean, I'm Ukrainian and there's a war raging in my country and I have spoken to and interviewed lots of military personnel, people who have been in the colonies and have since been released after capture and, and, um, it's the stories are harrowing and, and speaking to them is an inspiration. Uh, but you are there to make troops laugh. Uh, and 
do, do you, is that life-changing? Because I know just me talking to people in Ukraine really ch changes my heart forever. Um, and what was that like for you? I mean, it's amazing. I've done, you know, I did military tours before I went to Afghanistan, but they're in our, you know, not like non-war zones. So it's, it's not, you know, you're still just entertaining the troops, but there, there's, you don't feel that pressure and that stress of what they're going through. And then, you know, when we went to Afghanistan, it was a three week tour. Um, you know, we went to Kyrgyzstan and Afghanistan and it's, it was brutal. You know, it was the summer, it's 125 degrees. You had to wear like jeans and like a long shirt when you're on the choppers and you know helmet and all that stuff but it was incredibly rewarding to go to these small little fobs which are the tiny little remote bases and perform for these you know men and women you know that are just doing the you know the most amazing selfless thing they can do for our country and they just it didn't even matter what we said they just were so happy we were there to entertain them and like they you know it was a little piece of home talking about stuff and then we would hang out with the troops after and talk to them and it's funny because they just were like what movies are out what movie did you see like what's they just wanted to talk about stuff like that about you know the comforts from home and and it was also very you know there's a one of the hospitals on the base, Leatherneck, is uh, there's bastions on the other side, which is the British army. And so it's like connected. And we went into the hospital to talk to some troops, um, some soldiers that were being sent home. And I remember we walked in and there was maybe, God, it looks like he was 10, I, I can't remember, between eight and 10, a little Afghan boy who had like, third degree burns and like his arms or whatever apparently you know it, it's I can't even say it it's a third world country it's like the middle ages like the underdevelopment of it all you're just shocked so in a lot of these like homes the they have a fire pit running all the time and the eldest child sits outside at night to like man the fire and he's a kid and he fell asleep and fell into the fire pit so he was brought to this hospital because the parents didn't know what to do with him. They have other kids. They just let it, the, the soldiers take him to treat him, but they weren't there. And he was screaming and scared. And all these British and American doctors were, you know, and I remember we walked in and I mean, I just started crying. And this poor child didn't have his parents. They didn't want to be there. They wouldn't have come there for him. I'm like watching him. I'm watching our soldiers, our Marines, and it just was really, you know, we're very fortunate living here and not seeing that on a daily basis that, mm. yeah, it was very eye-opening. It was very, you know, we went there for three weeks and, you know, you decompress apparently on the way back to, in Kyrgyzstan, but we like actually volunteered at like an orphanage and and we're doing stuff. But when I got home, I mean, I was messed up for a couple months and I yeah. wasn't even in war. Like I was in yes. the zone, but I wasn't. Yes. It's just really, you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. that's that's how I, I felt like when I was talking to um some of the yeah. soldiers that were, you know, traded. Uh I mean, like, yeah, I, I'm not there. I, I yeah. didn't see any of the atrocities, but just talking to them, 
I, I was, I felt like I had some type of PTSD and like, I would go outside, outside and see like people walking down the street, sunny LA and you know, minding their own business, having a great, and I just wanted to be like, don't you know what's going on? Like what? You have no idea what's out there. And like, I just, I just wanted to, to, to shake people and just be like, wake up. Comedy is so therapeutic. And I worked again. Yeah. With a lot of, um, military, you know, ex-military and they had PTSD and we talked a lot about it and to bring humor to it sort of diffuses that, you, yeah. think, you know, comedy healed and, you know, talking about it in a way that's not going to be super depressing, but is kind of hilarious in certain ways. It's just, you know, adding comedy to something that's tragic. That's why they say tragedy plus time equals comedy. That's, mm. why, that's yeah. why they say that. It's yeah. just true, you know, I joke about my mother's death and a lot of people joke about the death of someone or an addiction or like the, the worst times of their life because that helps you heal. If you don't talk about it, you don't heal. And a lot of people with PTSD don't want to talk about it because it brings up somebody. But if you talk about it with sort of a humorous take, if you add a little humor to that, yeah, find a way to yeah. add the humor to it, it actually becomes less and less and less traumatic slowly over time because you're actually talking about it and- that was like a huge thing when I was talking to this one Marine there. And when I came back and I don't know if it was the universe giving me like, it just seemed like every class after that, I had somebody that was in the military there. So it was, it was, it was kind of like an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's life-changing. But having said that, I remember when we were in Kyrgyzstan talking about like, oh my God, like we're so like, at it. and they said, yeah, you're going to feel kind of, you know, this way for maybe a month, maybe two, they go, but before you know it, you'll be irritated again that you're waiting so long at Starbucks for your yeah. because this is where we grew up. And, you know, I think about that when I became a mom, everything upset me, everything upsets me. Seeing a homeless person on the street upsets me because they used to be somebody's baby. I want to help everyone. I, I don't just think about obviously, and I'm Ukrainian, Russian, Ukrainian. I mean, I think about that. I think about the war. And then I think about children starving in Kenya uh, or another place. Like I think about people that don't have clean water around the world. I look at my daughter, I'm like, what if she couldn't drink water? You know what I mean? I look at pictures of these children that are orphans and in another country and it's, uh, the world is so fucked up. I used to watch, I mean, I still kind of watch some of them, but I used to watch all the true crime serial killer. And I'm like, I can't watch this. Yeah, it's like, it, my daughter ruined my favorite shows because now everything makes me cry. I've got to watch like teen dramas so that I'm just like light and easy because if not, I'll just cry. Well, you know, there's always Dora the Explorer and Elmo and you can just <laughs> go to baby Einstein's or little Einstein's and uh, yes. Oh, she's those. got her, she's got Miss Rachel and Flippy, which are the newer ones. Just love okay, so let's talk about your daughter. Uh, I, I feel like I'm following you in social media. Things are, you know, you're doing your thing, your observational comedy, your some <laughs> personal stuff. And then all of a sudden, like one day you're like, Hey, this is my daughter. <laughs> like, Hey, meet, meet Mackenzie. And I was like, what, what, what I, and I, and especially because your comedy, you're always talking about being single and, and, uh, and, and your special, which we'll get to you talk about being single in your twenties and then in your thirties and then your forties. And 40s. so like, it, there's the, this, this through line about being single and all of a sudden baby appears. Um, and so, and, and in the middle of COVID like yeah. COVID on top yeah. of that. So, uh, 
I'm assuming the process started before COVID. I had been trying to get pregnant on my own. I mean, I made a decision a long time ago that um, I was going to be a mom, you know, whether I found the one or not, because there's yeah. an expiration date on that, as we all know. And, yeah. you know, I, I wanted both. I still believe I'm going to have both. It's just, you know, as my special, I want to talk about my special, everybody does everything on their own timeline. You don't know that when you're young, you think I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then the universe and life is like, no, you're going to do it totally different, um, which is fine. You just have to sort of like let go of that control and let it happen. Um, so I was trying to get pregnant on my own, my very early forties after my mom passed, uh, because it was, a, that was a huge regret that I had that I didn't not that she ever pushed me. My dad has always been the one that's like, oh, my grandchild. My mom never pushed any of that mm. marriage or anything. Whenever you're ready, you're ready. And then she passed young and, you know, young issue, 69. And it, I thought, wow, I, she never got to see me get married. She never got to meet a grandchild. And it was, I just was like, I, this is the time. I don't have much time left. So I tried to get pregnant on my own with a fertility doctor. And we were just doing IUI at the time, which is less invasive than IVF, but he felt like it should work and it didn't. And then we'd done, you know, a few cycles, like six months worth. And then I did the military tour in Afghanistan. Oh no, I'm sorry. I did another military tour, a different one, which was not, well, we went to Honduras, Guantanamo Bay. That was a super fun tour. But when I came back, everything had sort of shifted. My follicles, my eggs, everything was weird. And, and then he was like, well, I think it's time to explore other options like IVF or embryo adoption, which is where you carry an, an embryo, which was very, you know, is a very viable thing because women can carry babies into their sixties, um, which I didn't know, but your uterus doesn't age the way your ovaries do. So these were all options and my head was kind of spinning and I, so I decided one round I'll do one, I'll pull eggs and we'll do one round of IVF. So he put me on the steroids, the shots, all the shots, the hormones, sorry. And then I got the call that I was going to be on America's Got Talent. So I gained a little bit of weight from that. So I stopped. I thought, okay, that's the reason I didn't get pregnant. I'm supposed to be on America's Got Talent. So I stopped taking everything. So I shed some weight and I got America's Got Talent and then everything kind of happened and I was in that deep depression and I was like I'm I gotta put this on pause even though I know time is not on my side but I put it on pause and I kind of let let it go and then I started working on the game show and a friend of mine and her wife what's the game show I know you've referenced it a few times let's give it a name it's called funny you should ask all right it's starting season seven yeah coming up it's called funny you should ask. so um here's an amazing story that I think you're going to be amazed by it and your listeners will be too so a really good friend of mine started working on the show. I mean, we were more of acquaintances at the time. She's a comic, but now we're very good friends. She started working on the show as a writer and I was the head writer at the time. I'm now the executive producer, but I was the head writer at the time. And she started working and she told me that her and her wife were, she had to let me know and, and our boss let us know that they had just entered the foster to adopt system, which means that they could get a baby at any time. They don't know what age, they don't know, they could just get a call, whatever. And then they did. Like two weeks later, she got a call, newborn baby, newborn baby boy. So she took her maternity leave. Um, Lennon was adorable. He's so cute. And But when you foster to adopt, they try to do reunification with the birth mom. That's their goal, the courts. But this birth mom happened to be very young. So it was a lot of ups and downs. I was watching them go through it. It's like, imagine having your daughter. And then a year later, they're like, now we have to take your daughter away. Thanks for raising this little baby for a year, but we're going to give her back to the yeah. mom who's in recovery or yeah. picking herself. We don't know. You know, there's lots of different reasons. So I watched her emotional roller coaster and thinking, 
I don't think I could do that. Even though I was actually like, maybe I would do a foster. I would, I would adopt a little bit older, but you can't just adopt a little bit older. You have to go through the foster system, which is anyway. So I just was like, as a single person, I, I, I couldn't survive that if I raised a baby for a year and they took the baby away, I wouldn't survive it. So I thought, I think I'm going to adopt. I remember actually seeing a documentary and I, about that. And I just was like, I'm just going to, my friends, two of my friends, Michael and Tony, they adopted this little girl. So they gave me their lawyer's number, their agency's number. It happened very fast. December, 2019. Well, November, 2019 into December is when I got into the system. I started basically, then you, you put together a profile, you get all your reference letters, you take these courses, your home study courses. And they, then they send you birth mom possibilities. And I remember the first birth mom possibility they sent me, she was out of Texas. She had had like seven children all adopted out. She was a prostitute. I'd taken all the classes. I didn't mind that she was a prostitute. I didn't mind that she sometimes did drugs because alcohol is worse than any drug you put in your body when you're pregnant. It's unbelievable. And like, it's like alcohol feels like that's the worst thing you can do to a baby in utero out of all the drugs, like the other yeah. drugs don't affect it. Anyway, it's crazy. People don't know that. Anyway, so that didn't bother me. But then I found out she was HIV positive, even though none of her, her last two births, those children were not. But I thought, mm, I'm not going to risk it. So I remember that I passed on that. And then like, I didn't get anything for a couple of months. It was taking very long. Then the pandemic hit. And I remember like texting my lawyer and he's like, well, it's just, things are a little slower. And I didn't really, he didn't say this, but on the pecking, in the pecking order of things, it goes straight couple, gay couple, single woman, single guy, as far as what birth parents, birth oh. moms, when they look at packets of potential people, yeah. yeah, even if they're an addict, they still sort of have their own, like, I don't want this person. So I wasn't even getting a lot of like possibilities compared to my other friends who were in the system that were getting birth mom possibilities, like three or four a week. It's like social media. <laughs> it's exactly. It's like dating. It's like online dating. I joke about it, but it really is like, yeah. you're like Jesus Christ. So Right, I mean, six months before I got my daughter, I did get a call from him. He's like, I have a great possibility. This woman's in in Oregon and she's just like really poor. And I think she did some drugs, but not a lot, but she really poor. She's open to gays and singles. That's what he said. He's like, I think we have a really good shot at this. And she's being induced in a week. I was like, oh, in a week? Usually you've got a month. But I was like, okay, okay. He's like, send me your packet right now. So I sent it, it was a Thursday and I didn't hear anything. And then the agency called me on Friday. They're like, did you hear from your lawyer? And I was like, no. And then I, I call my lawyer and he's like, let me check with her lawyer. Okay. But wait, but so far, if somebody were to just drop down this conversation, they could very easily think that your packet is your audition tape and you have to send it in. Cause there's the agency and there's the lawyer. Oh and- yeah, I totally. People are like, was she auditioning for a role? Yes. You're auditioning for the role of mother. Uh, it's an ongoing uh, role. It never ends. Um, it never gets canceled. It's always yep, getting picked up for new seasons. Lots of spinoffs. You know, so my, my lawyer's like, I'm going to call her, her lawyer. And then he sends me this text that I'm sure was very hard for him to send. But he said, so her lawyer said she will not consider anyone uh, with a Jewish background. In this, I go, what? I literally was like, unfortunately, the birth mother will not consider anyone with a Jewish background. And my gut response was to say, you tell that white trash bitch that only someone with a Jewish background could afford that fucking child. This is expensive, by the way, to adopt. It is expensive as hell. I do use all my savings. I was like, 
I was so, but of course I just responded with, wow. And he's Jewish and he's like, I know it happens. And I'm thinking this young girl in Oregon, like it was very, it still was so shocking to me. So you'd consider gays and singles, but not Jewish. So, okay. So that was like six months. So then I considered getting a surrogate because I was like, it's not going to happen. So back to the drawing board, that was it? There- well, that was, yes, that was for like that. six months. Yeah. That was it for that. So I'm thinking about, you know, using a surrogate, all of that. And it was a Sunday night in January, January 31st. I was doing a podcast, my podcast, and I got off my podcast and I see a text message from my lawyer. Great possibility, just emailed it to you. That's what he always says. I looked at it. I like looked it over. I, I just looked at her health background, everything, meth addict, but like, you know, has a lot of kids. They've all been healthy. No, nothing in her health background, her family, like, no, you know, lots, no yeah. cancers, all that. So I'm like, all right, yeah. all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, okay, submit. Like, go take a shower. I go on the couch. I'm binge watching at this time. I'm in season three of Gilmore Girls. And I'm sitting there with a bowl of whipped cream on a Sunday night. And my phone rings. So it was like two and a half hours later. And it was my lawyer. And I remember thinking, because it happened like, almost every time I sent that packet, which is a massive PFD, PFD, oh my God, PDF, <laughs> uh, massive PDF. I'm thinking, oh, it's going to go through. And I got to get up off the couch and resend. So I picked up and I go, hey. And I didn't hear him. It was like a weird silence. I go, David? And it, he just goes, you were selected. And I go, for what? He's like, Jody, your daughter was born this morning. You need to get on a plane tomorrow and go to Kentucky. And then like, I remember, I remember almost passing out because I couldn't hear anything for a second. I, your body goes into shock. And yeah. my, my knee jerk reaction was, this isn't your baby. It's too soon. What do you mean? It, like you told me I have three months. I didn't, I, what's happening. I I'm not to, ready. I wanted to be, <laughs> yes. I wanted to be in the delivery room. I wanted to meet the birth mother. I want like all of these things. And I remember pacing in my living room and he said, okay, I know everything that you're feeling right now because David Radis, by the way, shout out, is the baby rainmaker. He's been in this industry so long. Everyone knows David Radis. If you're, I mean, it's crazy how many babies he's like found for, you know, amazing parents. So he's like, Jody, I know this is the most stressful way it can happen. It is the most stressful way. He goes, but it's also the best way. She's not backing out. This is her 13th pregnancy. He's like, you need to, like, you need to, get everything in order and get in a plane. And I'm like, I just was like, he goes, but just so you know, if you get there, because they never gave me the health, her like full health background, they didn't give me like the health of the baby or anything. They, I could back out if I got there. Yeah. And it wasn't a fit. So I remember calling my dad, he had the same reaction. This isn't, I thought you were going with a surrogate. What's like, I don't know. Do you know anything about this birth mom? And I was like freaking out, freaking out. So the next day I had to get like my fingerprints done again, my life scan, everything. I like get on a plane, throwing up all the way to Kentucky. I was like, it was like, I was in labor. I remember talking to the doctor when I got there, I was throwing up. I couldn't, I was like feeling so sick. I was like, I was dizzy. I get there, I'm by myself. You can't go with anyone. All of my friends were like, I want to go with you. You couldn't. I was the only one allowed in the hospital because of COVID. COVID. Yeah, wow. I get there, big thing. They're like, wait, are you the adoptive mother? Like what's, and then, you know, all the forms and everything from the agencies. And I was like, I don't know. And then I walk in there. My baby was a preemie and she was four pounds, seven ounces. So she was very healthy. She just needed help feeding, but not anything else. But she was in a little incubator for one day. 
And I walked in and I remember I, I collapsed in the nurse's arms and I was crying and she was like, that's okay, cry, cry. And I just was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I don't know anything. And I remember I did like the skin to skin and I held her and I was just sort of like thinking, am I supposed to know that this is my daughter? I don't know what I'm supposed to know. And I remember putting her back in there and I had to go check into the hotel. And you know, babies can't, when they're born, they can't see anything like unless it's right in front of their face. And her, she was sleeping the entire time. And I, I got really close to like the little incubator. And I just, I just said, I'll see you tomorrow. And her eyes fucking darted open and she locked eyes with me. And I just started wailing, crying. And I, as I was walking out of the hospital, I called my dad and I said, that's my daughter. And it all just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, that's my daughter. And then the next year of my life was fucking crazy. I mean, it was really hard um, becoming a mom like that and doing it by yourself and all of that. But, okay. So fast forward, Mackenzie and I living our best lives. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, um, she's amazing. She's like the best child in the whole How world. How old is she and now? She's two, two? and a half. Okay, two, two and, and a half. half. Yeah, two and a half. She'll be three in January. Um, so it was November of last year, November. My, I, we have an open adoption, me and the birth mom. So I email her pictures of Mackenzie. And I mean, I really love Vicky. That's her name. She is, I joke about her on stage. She's, she really had the worst life. We talk about having a great life. She had the worst life. And she's been pregnant many, many times in her life since she was 15. She's a meth addict, but she really is a good human and a funny, funny human. And I always feel so bad that she was never adopted because she's, she's a good person. Yeah. So, you know, she sends, she sends the things that Mackenzie are going to want to hear. She sends things like, I, I'm so happy you're her mommy. I love you both. You're an angel. Thank you for, you know, being the best mom to her. Like it's what Mackenzie is going to want to see when she's older. Yeah. So she, we're emailing back and forth. I'm wishing her happy Thanksgiving. And she says, guess what? I'm prego again. <laughs> And I was like, I got like that full body panic because I knew early on that she loved me and that she told her caseworker that if she did get pregnant, even though she doesn't want to get pregnant again, she's asked to get her tubes tied. That's a whole another podcast. So she, <laughs> but I knew that she would want me to adopt this child. I knew it. And she did. And I was like, I can't, I can't be outnumbered. First of all, I'm too old now. And also, yeah, I can't like that. It almost killed me. I had to get a night nurse. I thought I was going to, I thought I was going crazy mentally. Like it was nuts. So I said, Vicky, I, I can't adopt that child, but I know couples that are looking to adopt again, that have already adopted. And my first thought was Michael and Tony who had referred me because they were looking to adopt again, but they had just gotten their second daughter and they were like, Oh, I was like, Oh, wow. And then my friend, Jess, who I, started talking about the very beginning of this conversation. Yes, that's right. Me. Coming back around full circle now. Her mom had passed away maybe four months earlier from cancer. And um, my mom obviously died, died of cancer too. So I, and she works, you know, on my show. And we, I just, I reached out to her to, to see how she was doing. And something, it's just something in my head. I knew that she had mentioned once that her and her wife were looking to adopt again, but I was like, it's too soon. She just lost her mom. Her son is almost four. Like, I know they want to adopt again. They don't want to do foster to adopt because it was too stressful. So I just said, Hey, 
this might be too soon. You can tell me to fuck off, but Mackenzie's birth mom is pregnant again. And if you guys are looking to adopt again, it would be a done deal. All Vicky has to say is I want that couple. And you cut through everything I went through for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. And she was like, wow, I don't even, okay, let me, let me just talk to my wife and we'll, we'll get back to you. And then it just sort of happened. Cut to March 17th, 2023, baby shy was born and my friends adopted him, my daughter's half brother. And they live six minutes from us. They live around the corner. He is almost five months now. And the cutest thing, he looks a lot like his sister and they all get to grow up together. Isn't that amazing. That's an amazing, amazing story. I like made that shit happen. I remember getting out, like, I remember when I was emailing with Vicky and thinking, I don't care who it is. Her brother is going to be raised in California. She doesn't know any of her half siblings. It's going to be hard for me to track them down. Eventually she's going to want to meet some of them. There were two that were adopted before her, which was an open adoption, but I can't get that information. Yeah. But I was like, this child, she will know. She will know her half brother. <sighs> so baby, so Lennon's almost five now, but he's, he's four, four and a half. His brother's shy, he's like five months and Mackenzie's two and a half. So they're all two years apart and it's the cutest thing. Like, do you feel so accomplished having done, like just so like one of the, it's probably like the biggest move you could ever make in someone's life. It's so many things had to happen for yeah. this to happen, but they were supposed to happen. Yeah. Jess was supposed to work at Funny You Should Ask. They were always meant to, you know, obviously foster their first yeah. son and then adopt him. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that process. It really is what made me want to adopt. I adopted and then the birth mom got pregnant again. And they, yeah. like it, yeah. so many things had to happen yeah. for yeah. that to happen. For me to, for me to get turned on by every birth mom, I didn't even get them in. So Vicky, and I could develop a relationship, me and the yes. birth mom, yeah. that she trusted me. She did. She And then once they did, the adoption went through because they had to spend a month there because Shy was um, a little bit more preemie than Mackenzie and a little underweight. He was about four pounds. He's so totally healthy too. They're both incredibly healthy. But So they actually got to spend a little bit more time with Vicky, the birth mom. And Vicky sent me maybe the nicest email, just like, I can't thank you enough for introducing me to Nikki and Jess because- now I know that two of my babies will grow up near each other, knowing each other. She's like, you brought more love into my life than anyone. I, cause they love her. I love her. You know, she's an addict. So we keep that in mind, but we still love her and we let her know how much we love her. And she's given us, you know, the most amazing gifts. So we're all interconnected. How can you not believe in something bigger than yourself because of the, all of those things had to happen? Yeah. It's crazy. Oh my God. It's so funny. People say that all the time. People that we work with on the game show were like, oh my God, are you like supplying all the writers <laughs> with babies? I mean, it's so funny. And then I had someone else that were like, okay, so if she isn't, I mean, she gives, I mean, her children are all stunning. We did actually track down about four of them because <laughs> Nikki's wife is like a sleuth. It's just one of those things that you don't realize, you know, some people would write off oh, she's an addict or whatever. I'm like, and then I hear, you know, her story. I didn't even need to hear her story to just know that we're not all born. She was born to two addicts. She was abused her whole life. She was dropped off at Child Protective Services. She had a terrible life. But even if she didn't have a terrible life and she became an addict, it whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? Like she's still yeah. a human being and she deserves love. And yeah. you know, she also doesn't want to be pregnant. It's not like she wants to do it. It's not like she's doing it for the money. She gets like, you know, that's another thing. They get like nothing. 
yeah. compared to what the agencies make. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other topic too, but yeah. Anyway, so that's the story. Wow. That's incredible. And, and so, so much of it is in your special, like uh, not this part, but like other parts. So let's get to the special because we, you've, you've been so generous with your time. And, and, and I feel like the, the special is really um, going to be uh, something special. First of all, I've never, I haven't set foot in a comedy uh, club since way, way, way before COVID. And uh, you performed at the ice house in Pasadena, which is super historic. And um, I was so blown away. I related to so much of everything that you did, but but then I also got a chance to see how specials are made because you did two shows, which I'm yeah. assuming will be spliced together in one. So first of all, tell me like, how do you know it's time to have a special? How do you know, like you've waited this long, right? You could have done it sooner, but you didn't. So, um, uh, and, and why is it so important for comics or you to um, get to this point where you want to do a special? Um, I mean, I was ready to do it um, a long time ago. I did an album like, like, I don't know, eight years ago, six years ago, or eight, six, I can't remember now, but um, I couldn't do a special because I didn't have the money to produce it. And I didn't have a production company that wanted to do it with me. Um, not that I wasn't ready. And then right before COVID, I actually, it was the first time I really thought, I mean, I started working on the game show and that was taking a lot of my time, but right before COVID, I, I was like, oh God, I'm so ready like to do a special. And I had already been writing a lot and I was actually writing a, um, um, a pilot uh, based on my podcast, which is Don't Call Me Ma'am, talking about getting older in this yes. industry, getting older in the world of social media. You know, it's no longer a midlife crisis. It's a quarter life crisis. It's a three quarter life crisis. Everybody has it because of, of the FOMO and, and everything else. And so I was doing my podcast for a long time. So I wrote like a pilot sitcom based around that. And I was ready. I mean, I really wanted to do it. And then COVID hit. And um, I obviously like even before I got my daughter, like that first year into COVID, almost a year, I, I lost my identity because I wasn't working. Um, I worked on like this Fox show as, as a, as a head writer, but I wasn't doing standup because nobody was really doing standup except on zoom. And I was like, well, who am I? I'm not a mom. I'm not a wife. I'm not this. I'm not that. And so it kind of fucked with me. And then we slowly started getting back in to comedy doing parking lot shows and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, there it is. And I feel good again. And I had a lot of material about getting older and, you know, a lot of stuff that you did here because that was, you know, I was writing a lot of that stuff during COVID and, and after that, and then I got my daughter and then my life was, I remember driving home, she was a month old and I did a show, a parking lot show that I had done. And, um, I did a lot of new material because I, I, you know, I was in, uh, you probably don't remember because I think our brains purposely forget, but zero to four months was so traumatic and so terrible. And I hate when everyone's like, oh my God, you love the newborn stage. It was the worst fucking time of my life. And people don't want to admit how horrible it is. It's terrible. Zero to four months is like a total, like what's happening to my life, my body, this, this blob that can't uh, give you any affection, just cries, eats, poops, wasn't sleeping at night, wasn't sleeping during the day. I was literally going out of my mind. And I went on stage and it was just the worst experience of my life. And even my old stuff wasn't, I was so disjointed. I'm sure the audience thought it was fine. I got off stage though. And I cried all the way home because 
but I don't think a lot of people do when they become parents, whether it happens overnight or you have nine months, you can't ever prepare for really the death. The first time you become parents, uh, your first job, you, it's the death of your old life. I was like, oh, that, that version of me no longer exists. And I have to mourn that it, it was gone. And I don't know who this new version of me is going to be. I'm sure she'll be fine, but you, I don't think we mourn the death of our old lives when we become parents. And it was very hard to do because stand up had been something that I had done most of my life and I didn't even feel like I could do it. I slowly started getting back into it with her again. Uh, I did a lot of Zoom shows with her, literally feeding her. Um, you also, she was also, you know, you you did this recurring skit where like you were the HR person and- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love doing that little videos with her. I love doing videos with her. I did lots of videos with her. Yes. She, she's so funny and she's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just, I found a way to come back to it as a mom. Yes. And yeah. she's your foil in so many of your really, um, She really things. is. And yeah. then, you know, all of a sudden before I knew it, you know, uh, live shows were back and yeah. I was doing those and feeling good and slowly and slowly and slowly. And then I, I, all of a sudden, my manager who hadn't seen me perform in a long time came to see me at Westside Comedy. And it was just a great show. And I did like 15 minutes. Which I, and she was like, Jesus Christ. She's like, I haven't seen, she just hasn't seen me live in so long. Definitely be, not before the pandemic. And maybe one other time. And she was like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, I feel really strong right now. And she's like, what are we doing? Why are you not? I'm like, yeah, what are we doing? Um, but I was now back at work. And I was like, all right, I guess we can do a special. Let's do a special. And we had this production company that I was working with on something else. So we just presented it to them. They, Solaris Entertainment. And they were like, yes, absolutely. We'd love to produce your special. And then they brought National Lampoon in. And all of a sudden I had people that wanted to do it. And it was the right time. Again, it's all about the timing. We think yeah. it has to happen at a certain time. And I actually, that, and now it's, it wouldn't have been the same reasons I was going to do it before. Before I was like, I'm doing it for me. This is going to help my career. And now genuinely, I don't give a shit where it is. I mean, like I care where it goes, but ultimately it'll, you know, end up on YouTube the way most things do. It's for my daughter. It's for me and my daughter. I did it. I wanted to do it. I did it. And she will see it and it will be there. It will live on forever. And I've lots of clips that live on forever, but this is, this is like all of it, the culmination of all of it. And it is decades in the making because I'm decades in the making. And again, yeah, I could have done a special three years ago. And I'm sure it would have been great. I think again, everything happens for a reason. And Absolutely. Yeah. And you're walking living proof of like the ups and downs and how like so much of your suffering is in silence. Right. And then you come and, but you do these shows, you put on a happy face, America's got talent, but then there's those devastations behind the scenes yeah. and then you get cut and then, and all we see is a certain version. And then all of a sudden you come out with this special and you're on the, at the ice house and you're talking about all of this in a funny way, of course, like everybody is laughing. Um, and, uh, and I just, I just left feeling like I had no idea and what an amazing person just rolling with the punches. And I just sort of felt like it's just a, you are a walking lesson to us all. Like you are a walking reminder of like, you know, not to let the highs get too high and the lows get too lows because there's always another one around the corner. Right. You know, I mean, we all have those times and social media masks a lot of it you don't realize I look at so, like I try not to but it's like you can't help it you, 
the compare and despair game is so strong, especially now with the social media, you constantly look at other people's lives and you think, oh my God, they're killing it. I want their life or whatever. But behind the scenes, it's a totally different story. I still am like, oh my God, you're killing it to some people. And they're like, oh God, it's just been like the worst month of my life. I'm like, you, you never, you can never see that. Truthfully though, like the moments that, hopefully the moments that most people post and the moments that I post, especially with Mackenzie, when I was making little videos with her or whatever, those were really, those were really happy moments. And that's, I think, a good reminder for all of us Yeah, to live in the moments. And we don't because everything, we future trip. Yes, yes, we do. Thinking about what's coming next and what can I do when, when you're in that moment, really enjoying something, it's good to enjoy it because it's so funny because I taped that special on Friday, two shows amazing on like the high of my life on friday sunday mackenzie took a giant shit in her bathtub picked it up with her hand screamed through it screaming shit everywhere and i had to wash her in my sink so that's the hot like that and that is like you know the ups and downs you're like oh my god like it's everywhere and now she's traumatized she won't get in a bath i'm having like the toughest time with her it's like oh my god (laughs) You know, it's like, you never really know what's going on. Because everybody's like, oh my God, you just look like, you're making it look so easy. And I'm like, well, I could definitely post the videos of me crying. Yes. Screaming <laughs> in my house if you want that. But I don't think anybody wants that. Yeah. But when I do post, when we post, when I post something and it's adorable and cute, I am in that moment feeling it's adorable and cute. Yeah. Next moment could be totally something else. But in yeah. that moment, that's what I'm feeling. And that's- I, I- Yeah. And the thing is future tripping is so pointless because the future will always be out of reach, right? You will never get to the future because the future becomes the present. And so we're always in the present, which was, which was at one point the future. So you just have to stay in the present because each new moment was the future two seconds ago and is now here. Yeah. So you do two, you, you did two, um, recordings. I was there for the seven 30 show. Yeah. And I think the next one was like nine 30 or 10. And then, and then what happens? You, you look at them both and you decide what jokes worked better in which one. There's one show that I think we're pulling the majority of and inserting stuff from the other show. So there'll be one that we'll use as the master, um, and just, yeah, cut and piece, you know, um, them together and come up with a great version of it and then you know they'll you know they already have some interest in it there was definitely some industry there on the early show that you were there um so we know people are interested in it um and again like that's great that you know the game has definitely changed even with that you know it won't go to netflix so i can tell people that now and that's only because netflix isn't buying anymore and they don't pay anything for them and they'll only take the people that they've really been doing like years and years and years of like we've already already you know had the meeting with them even before i shot it so yeah. that was never on the on the table which is totally fine because as joe rogan pointed out on his podcast which changed everyone's mind because once joe rogan says something it's God, it's law, uh, but it's true. He said everybody should be posting on YouTube because that's where you can monetize the most. Yeah, and you can get millions and millions and millions of views. You can repost and people can, you know, it's it's true. So it will eventually live there. Yes, um, in clips and in the in its entirety. But we would love to have it on a streaming platform for sure, and that's the goal. But again, I I that's the difference between 
doing things a little bit older. I'm glad I'm an older parent, to be honest with you, going through it. I don't think I could have done this in my 20s. I mean, I could have because I would have had a lot of energy, but I, I've always had a lot of energy. But just- you could have done it at any age because you would have had to. I mean, that's yes, just it. that's exactly. Right. You, exactly. You would have. Right. But I'm glad I'm doing it now because I don't have the desire to go out and, you know, do all the things I did through my, you know, my 20s, 30s and early 40s, you know, travel the world. I'm glad I was able to do all of that. Yes. Well, I felt great. You know what I mean? Yes. Was, you know, and now it's the perfect time. It's the perfect time for yeah. us together. And and hopefully the next chapter includes, you know, a man, a husband, a partner. Um, and that's, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But that's amazing. It's, so, so if people want to check in on you, yeah. uh, to see, uh, updates on yeah, the yeah. special and, or just see you and Mackenzie as your foil yeah. on social media, where is the best way for them to so log in and find you? It's Jody Miller comic, J O D I Miller comic, all one word. And that's across everything. So just, yeah, look me up and you'll see where I am. I'm, I took a couple of weeks off from doing stand up, but and I'm not going to be doing it as much as I was leading up to the special, but I'm still at the comedy store all the time. Um, improv, you know, ice house again. And now I'm just going to be working on new material. So, yeah, you know, I don't have that desire right now. And maybe there will be another special down the road. I don't even think about that now because I'm, you know, I'm working on a show. I'm very happy on that show now. And it's perfect timing because I get yeah. my daughter and I'm not, you know, working the road. And as Mackenzie reaches new milestones, I'm sure you'll be incorporating those moments into uh, your your comedy as well as school. And then I'm sure when she starts dating, you know, when she's 16, you'll have something to say about that. I'm sure I I can't wait for those. I can't wait for those moments. I mean, she's been in school since she was five months. I mean, daycare. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I've got lots of daycare humor. I got lots of all. I mean, there's a lot of stuff yet. But, you know, and again, it's not even, that's another thing, people. That's why the special had so many different, like, chapters or levels or different, like, acts is because I'm not just a mom. I'll never just be a mom. Yeah. I will still be a woman. I will be a woman who is navigating through the 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 sea of getting older uh, oh my god you talk about botox and all of that stuff and you're and and it's so funny because no one in la will admit i know doing yeah, it's it, funny. Right? I didn't, the, the show that you saw which i did in the second show i actually i can't believe i didn't do it in the first show but um i actually talk about how celebrities don't talk about the work yeah. that done and i and i really do want that to change yeah because it's ridiculous like if my hair i'm not a natural redhead and when people find that out they're like well who does your hair of course i'm going to tell you well if someone's like you look really good i'll be like oh my god i have the best filler and you should go to my girl why wouldn't you share that with someone it's not taboo to want to look good and it's not it's it's people like i'm just doing something that makes me feel good i'm not doing it for anyone else but also i am in this industry so it is a part of how i look but yeah I would do it even if I wasn't in this industry and I enjoy doing it and I enjoy getting filler and I enjoy getting Botox and I love actually telling people like, oh my God, this, you know, I go to Blue Medi and they have always have specials and you should go there. This woman's so great. I mean, like I would share that information and people just want you to think it's good genes. Look at JLo. I'm like, give me a fucking break. You think that girl gets nothing done to her face. It's also, she's so much money. She can get laser, you know, 
every week. She can get it done in the comfort of her own home exactly. and no one will ever know. It's like ridiculous. You know what I mean? That people, I yeah. just wish more people would be honest about it. So you're like, you're like, I have the best person for Botox and the best mom for adoption. Exactly. Support <laughs> me. Oh my God, I can do both. Do you remember the days that people would never like people get boob jobs and like nobody wanted to talk about it? But now everyone's like, if you got a new set of tits, you'd tell everyone, look at my new boobs, look at this. But but the second you have no wrinkles, they're like, oh no, it's just good genetics. And it's like, I don't think so. It was so lovely to just check in with you. So great. Yes, I know. Yeah, amazing. Jody Miller, everyone. Awesome. See you. <laughs>